Our scripture reading today is in Genesis 38. Genesis 38. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her house, her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tinmah to, uh, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, he took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enyam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And he said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of the labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out, his, out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made of yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, amen to that. I'm sure that story has put all of you in the Christmas spirit. <laughs> all right, if you were thinking today, ah, oh, my kid doesn't want to go to Sunday school, uh, now is your last chance if anyone who you're worried is, you know, uh, not prepared for TV, MA, 13, whatever the ratings are these days, it is still not too late to send them out because we obviously have before us a very dark passage. 
A dark passage that maybe you're thinking right off the bat, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas? Or what, ha- what has this series been going through? Well, we actually, we start a new series today. And we start a new series in Genesis 38 as actually part of our Advent series. As we build up these next few Sundays to celebrate, of course, the birth, the arrival, the advent of Jesus Christ as a baby born in Bethlehem. And the reason that we're looking at Genesis 38 today is because the characters mentioned in this story are mentioned in the first three verses of the Gospel of Matthew. As the Gospel of Matthew opens up with the genealogy, that is the ancestry of Jesus Christ, it reads this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, who's the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You see, Tamar is one of a handful of women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. You have to understand how unusual that would be. That it would have been unheard of that in this opening chapter to talk about how Jesus is this king who has won this amazing victory, has gathered a people for himself, has women in his genealogy. That may not seem odd to us today, but back then it was radically countercultural. And so in addition to Tamar, we'll look at Rahab and then Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah, whom we know as Bathsheba. And then, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. As we look at these women, we're asking this question, why would Matthew single these ones out in particular? He could have put any women that are famous from Old Testament stories into the Bible. Could have been Sarah, whose name means princess, right? Could have put Rebecca in there. Could have put, you know, Ruth makes sense, right? She's kind of the hero of one of the stories. But like, why these other women who are outsiders, who are marked by scandal, and all of that to make this countercultural point that these are the people Jesus is not just associated with, but the people that Jesus comes from, the people of his lineage, And that points us to this dark story that we have here in Genesis 38. You see, this story really is the prototype, right, for the Advent story. Because what's the big theme of Advent? The theme of Advent that we heard read from Isaiah this morning is that the light shines in the darkness. Behold, the people have dwelled in great darkness but a light has shone upon them. Well, our passage shows us exactly what that looks like in the lives of individuals who live in deep darkness. You may have thought that your family Thanksgiving was a bit dysfunctional, and I hope that this gives you some hope that there are families who are way worse, and yet God broke through to them. You see, at the end of this story, is the exact opposite of the beginning of this story. The beginning of this story starts with Judah and two sons who are wicked. The end of the story is Judah now has two sons, one whose name means breakthrough. 
And it's how the light of God breaks through our own darkness. We'll see even the names of the places is all about people having their eyes opened, recognizing who they are in front of God, recognizing how God is still faithful to them. It's all about breaking through. And look, as I enter into this Christmas season, I have all the same things wash over me as I do every year at this time. And that is, how do we make sure that joy and love and peace and wonderful memories and the best Christmas ever breaks through into our life now? How do we make that breakthrough happen? But the fact of the matter is, is that this story shows us is that we can't break through to those things. God has to break through into our life. But here's what's great, is that that's not just something that's going to be true for those of you who maybe are just beginning to learn about Christianity and the way of following Jesus. What's incredible is that this story is about people who have grown up and lived in it their whole lives. And so whether you're an outsider or the insider, whether you are in the deep darkness being a victim or whether you are the one who is in many ways denying justice to others, as we'll see in this passage, God breaks through the darkness to everyone. And so that's what we're going to look at is how is it we can have this kind of breakthrough in our own lives? How does God's grace break through to us? So we'll look at three things. Okay, in order for us to see how the healing light of God's going to break through to our own deep darkness, we're going to first look at Tamar's deep darkness, the darkness that she finds herself in. And then we will look at, for our second point, how Tamar brings healing light into that darkness. We'll examine Tamar's healing light. And all of that is so that we can get to our third point here, which is, how is it God's healing light breaks through into our own deep darkness? How does that happen? In the midst of all the pressures that the season brings with our busy schedules, our busy to-do lists, and the unreasonable expectations to make this an incredible time. Well, let's look then at that first point, Tamar's deep darkness. Why we look at this deep darkness. You know, believe it or not, the portions that we had read for you this morning weren't actually some of the juiciest portions of the passage. If we were to back up earlier, we would see that part of Tamar's deep darkness is, comes with her first two husbands. See, Tamar was first married to a man named Ur. Ur, who is Judah's firstborn son, right, who's Name is evil spelled backwards in the Hebrew language. Yeah, that tells you all you need to know about him because that's all we need to know about him. And it says he's so wicked, God put him to death. Now you have to understand, you have to be really evil for God himself to put you to death. At this point, God has has only done that for the most wicked of societies. And yet he does it to this man. So Tamar is then handed over to her brother-in-law, Judah's second-born son, Onan. Now, Onan is supposed to engage in this practice called leverate marriage. It just comes from the Latin word for brother-in-law, lever, 
right? And that what would happen is because there's no social security, there's no safety net, right, uh, uh, from the state. Everything is, right, a tribal, agrarian culture, totally different time, place, and culture from our own. And one of the ways that they would care for women in this predicament, because in a previously married, widowed, childless woman would have been at the bottom rung of society, totally undesirable. The way to care for them, right, was that they would still be able to have progeny of their own through the brother-in-law taking care and taking her on. Now, all of the inheritance would still be passed down through her line. So because she's married to the firstborn son, all her children would get a firstborn's inheritance. And Onan, the brother-in-law here, he knows that. And so he's willing to be intimate with Tamar, but he's not willing to actually care for her. He's not willing to protect and provide for her in the ways that society was built at the time. Instead, he subjects her to a private shame and abuse that ultimately is going to have public consequences for Tamar. And yet God sees Tamar in her darkness, and so puts to death Onan. But unfortunately for Tamar, her first two husbands were, as they would say in the gaming world, just the mini-bosses, and now it's time for the final boss, Judah. You see, Judah is now beginning to refuse to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with his God, because what he's going to do is he sets up a ploy where he says, you know what, I do have one more son, and I know I'm supposed to give him to you, but how about you go back to your father-in-law? Don't worry, don't call us, we'll call you when he's ready. Because at this point, it's very likely Tamar you know, is still a teenager, right? And Selah is about to become a teenager because he'd be married off pretty early. And so she's told to wait. But we're told in the story that Judah has no intentions of giving Shelah to Tamar. And so she will continue to sit in her helpless estate at that time by men who are supposed to care for her, who instead are just going to abuse her and neglect her. And that's the darkness that Tamar sits in. But you see, Judah isn't just Tamar's darkness for no reason at all, right? He's just a flat, evil character. See, there's a reason for Judah's darkness, and that's because of the darkness of his own. Judah was supposed to have a fresh start. You see, if you were to read earlier in Genesis 37, Judah and his brothers have all just conspired to, well, murder their brother Joseph. They don't actually murder him. They sell him off, you know, human trafficking, one level down, I guess, right? And then they go to their father with the coat of many colors, with fake blood on it, right? And they say, do you recognize this father? Can you identify who this belongs to? All to deceive him. You see, because Judah grew up the fourth son of the least loved wife of his father. See, his, father, his grandfather, Laban, tricked his father, Jacob, into marrying his mother, Leah, when really Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, the more beautiful sister. And nothing drove that point home more than when Jacob was going to meet his brother Esau. He wasn't sure if Esau still wanted to kill him or not, so he sent 
He sent Leah's family ahead as a diversion, as basically a human shield. If Esau still wants to kill me, well, he'll kill off that part of the family I don't love that much anyways, and then me and Rachel and her children will be able to get out with enough time. And so you can imagine Judah as a young boy wondering, why is his father and the rest, some of his other half-brothers, so far behind as they return home to meet Uncle Esau? Of course, he would learn the story and he would see what his father had devised, that he would be totally willing to give up his other children in order to save his others, that his, his jealous control was going to lead him to destroy the lives of others. And so we're told in Genesis 38 that Judah turns aside from his brothers. He leaves them. He makes friends with a man in Canaan. They go down, they party. And then we're told that he sees a woman and he takes her and went into her. And if you're thinking that sounds less than romantic, it's because it is. It is less than honorable. It has the same echoes of Eve seeing and taking the fruit. It is the same echoes of other men in the scriptures who would see a woman and take a woman, right, and rape her. As that's essentially what we have. But then as Judah begins to have sons, he names his firstborn son Ur, evil backwards. And then as his next two sons are born, we're told that Judah's not even there. This unknown woman that Judah has taken, she names the boys because Judah is off in a city called Kezib, which is translated the city of lies. And so as Tamar then finds herself having lost two husbands now, these two brothers, Judah looks around and he thinks, hmm, what's the common denominator here? It can't be Judah. It has to be Tamar. Let's blame the woman. And so it must be Tamar's fault that these two boys have died. Because, of course, it can't be that Judah's the common denominator. He's in denial. And how will he deal with his problems? Well, he'll deal with his problems the way all men deal with their problems. What problems? Right? Until then we read later in the story, when that problem does come to the surface and he finds a solution to absolutely destroy it. And so here's the question. If this is the darkness that has been passed down from generation to generation that Tamar now finds herself in the midst of, how is Tamar going to get justice? How is Tamar going to do more than just get retribution? How is she going to get more than just revenge? How is she going to reach a justice that heals her and doesn't actually destroy her situation anymore? Because I'm sure maybe there's an urge inside all of you that, well, Judah should be, I don't know, like destroyed somehow, brought down, defeat the final boss. But here's the thing. In order for Tamar to get justice, it has to be a healing justice. It can't just be a justice that destroys everyone and leaves her in a worse situation than she's already in. So how is that going to happen? How is she going to be essentially, because she has no allies and no help, a one-woman truth and reconciliation commission all by herself? How is she going to do this? Well, thankfully, justice is on her side. Thankfully, the darkness that she sits in, light will shine into. That God sees her 
And that even though you read through Genesis 38 and not once is God mentioned, of course, as you see things orchestrated, it's far more than a coincidence. As we see the patterns that begin to work, that bring about a justice that doesn't destroy everyone, but that heals everyone. And you see, here's what we all have to reflect on. We all have to reflect on our own darkness. The darkness of the reality that there are, there are women like Tamar sitting amongst us now. There are men like Tamar sitting amongst us now, just like there are men and women like Judah sitting amongst us now. In a darkness, hiding things, shuffling problems to the side, having been victims of heinous darkness enacted upon them, or generations of darkness that's passed down from one to the other that continues to create more evil as it spirals out of control. And so how is it that God, in the midst of our own darkness, is going to untangle that without destroying us? Well, that's where we see Tamar's healing light come in. And that's our second point, is Tamar is not going to just expose Judah. She's going to help heal Judah. That as this woman who's had justice denied to her, who should be cared for, who has her own set of rights that are being denied, well, despite all the odds against her, she is going to bring a justice that heals. Because if you notice, the city where she enacts her plot is called Enaim, which is the opening of eyes. And so, of course, she realizes Judah is going to deny her rights and her inheritance and what's due to her. And Judah is blaming all of his problems on her. And so she comes up with a plot that, of course, seems rather suspect. I'll admit that. She comes up with a plot where she hears Judah's coming, and so she dresses up as what would be known as, well, this is how they would say it in Hebrew, a holy woman, which is really a euphemism for a cult temple prostitute. Because in the land of Canaan, these would have been at all various different towns where this ring of prostitution proliferated. And so, of course, Tamar, she knows what kind of man Judah is because her entire plot's predicated on the fact that he won't be able to resist. He will see her and want to take her. So she disguises herself and then enacts a plot that is inevitably going to help Judah see. It's going to help him recognize the state of his own life. And so she radically fights for justice by enacting this plot that obviously seems rather suspicious. To deceive her father-in-law, to sleep with her father-in-law, to become impregnated by her father-in-law. And then later, when it's found out that she's impregnated, she worked it out so that she would pull off one of the greatest reversals in Scripture up to this point. Because, of course, when Judah sleeps with her, she says, what are you going to pay me? And he goes, I'll give you a young goat. I'll send it. And she's like, great, I'm going to need a deposit for that. He says, okay. And so it says he leaves his signet ring, his cord, all these things behind, which is the equivalent of driver's license, credit card, social security number. Okay? 
She leaves that behind. And then when they go to look for her, again, they're going around the town now. He comes back with his friend and he's like, I got to pay off this woman because I need my stuff back. They can't find her. And they're like, oh, well, I mean, let's not waste too much time on this. Or people are going to wonder what we're walking around doing looking for a holy woman. And they're going to laugh at us. So to stave off embarrassment and further humiliation, they head back. And three months later, Judah is told that Tamar has become pregnant. And not pregnant in just any other means. Not just any kind of adultery against her son, Shelah, who she's betrothed to, but she's pregnant by prostitution. And we read two words in the Hebrew, take and burn. Finally, Judah has a way out. Finally, Judah can solve his problems. And yet... Tamar has a plot that is going to completely undermine him. Because as they're dragging her out to be burned, of course, she says and brings out the social security card, the credit card, and the driver's license. And she says, you know, because Judah is so, he is so passionate about justice, let me go ahead and out the guy who got me pregnant. Because after all, the law says he should be killed along with me. Right, so let me, because you're so into justice, Judah, because this means so much to you, here's the other person who should be condemned right alongside me. And this is where, of course, Judah is asked the same question that Judah asked his own father. Do you recognize these? And of course, This exposes Judah for the hypocrite that he is. This brings an even further, greater humiliation than anything Judah would have been worried about when looking for this holy woman, right? And of course, it is this very thing that gets Judah to actually call Tamar a real holy woman when he says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. You see, we're going to... Later, another passage that is like this great reversal is when David takes Bathsheba, another one of the women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. He sleeps with her, realizes she's pregnant, and so it devises a plot that inevitably kills her husband. The prophet Nathan comes to him and tells David a story. He says, David, you know, there was this rich man and he took, he had all these sheep and he went to this poor man and he took the one sheep that he had and took it and then killed the poor man. What should we do to the rich man? And David essentially says the same thing, take and burn. How could this justice, how how could this injustice go unpunished? And then of course, Nathan says to King David, you're that man. This is Judah's you're that man moment. But notice what it does for him, is it doesn't just humiliate him, though it's humiliating. It doesn't just expose him, though it's exposing. But it it brings about a healing that can restore Judah. Because what Tamar is able to do is Tamar is able to right this wrong. Tamar is able to overcome this injustice, but she does it in a way that saves Judah. She does it in a way that saves this whole family. She does it in a way that's inevitably going to lead to Jesus saving the entire earth. Because 
In exposing him, she keeps God's promise alive to him. Because look, let's face it, Judah was powerful enough, he could have rushed things enough that he could have just denied it. He could have been like, you stole those, or you took those, or nice try, right? I mean, he could have lied. He probably could have wiggled his way out of it. He could have devised another plan in order to still get rid of her, right? But instead, he stops. And as the text says, he does recognize his own darkness. He recognizes himself. He recognizes that she is more righteous than I. And that's when he begins to have his own breakthrough is that this light begins to heal him because he recognizes that just like his father was deceived by a veiled woman, well, he was deceived by a veiled woman. Just like his father was willing to destroy the lives of others because of his controlling fear over his son that he loves most, Joseph, Judah's willing to destroy the life of Tamar because of the son that he loves most, Shelah. And Judah recognizes that he's the one who really deserves to be burnt. And so he doesn't, he doesn't lie because he knows that losing his soul at this point would be far worse than just losing face. Because burying, burning Tamar will never actually get rid of the darkness that's inside his own soul. And Tamar, through her courage, through her fight for justice, is able to bring healing into Judah's life. Now, I say all of these things. We run through this story because Matthew takes this story and he interjects everything that we've just unpacked about how the healing light of God to help us recognize the deep darkness in our life breaks through, right? And he throws all of that weight into just the first few verses of the opening lines of the Gospel of Matthew. Because all of this sets up for us our third and final point, which is how does God's healing light break through into our deep darkness? How do we, like Tamar, fight for justice? How do we, like Judah, have a breakthrough like this? Well, ultimately, Jesus is this final breakthrough. You see, because as Tamar gives birth to Perez, who is God's grace breaking through, of course, it wouldn't be Perez who would come and provide the ultimate healing for this family. It wouldn't be Boaz who would come and provide the ultimate healing. It wouldn't be King David. It wouldn't be King Solomon. It would inevitably fall to King Jesus to come and break through. And you see, Jesus shows us that he knows exactly what it's like to be the Tamars of this world. Because his cross was the ultimate act of injustice. But not only that, his birth as a baby born into scandal between a father and mother who are not wed yet. The ultimate act of understanding exactly what it's like to live in our darkness exactly what it's like to have generation upon generation of evil passed down and multiplied, and yet able to stand in the face of it and bring healing. You see, we talk all the time about how God, how we're supposed to be people who 
love justice, excuse me, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That famous quote from the prophet Micah. We see no one can say that more than Jesus because Jesus identifies with the least of the society. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 10 this. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, a Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. This is the exact opposite of Judah. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And Jesus loves the foreigner, the widow, the most marginalized and the least of the society because Jesus entered into the most marginalized and least of the society. And you see, like Judah and like Judah's family, we all live in that tension of with our own darkness, the darkness that's been dumped on us and the darkness that we have dished out to others. How's God going to enact justice that doesn't destroy us but heals us? And of course, that's what the cross is. Because nothing more than the cross shows exactly how evil and deep your darkness is. Nothing exposes us more than the cross because the cross says the only way for you to be reconciled to God is for God himself to die for you. There could be no greater indictment, no greater exposure. And so the question is, is do you look at the cross and do you recognize the way Judah is called to recognize that that's what was required. As we sang this morning, that we would never know how much it cost to see our sin upon that cross. But also on that cross, do you recognize that this is God enacting a justice that can heal you? That, yes, we're told that God opposes the proud and we need to come to him humbly and recognize ourselves in our humble estate but God gives grace to the humble because the cross is no greater act of God keeping his promise alive than Jesus dying there for you to ensure that your sins would be covered. That Jesus, the most righteous human to ever walk the face of the earth because he himself was also God, is able to look at you and say, you are righteous. And in one sense, because he takes on your righteous, your evil and dies for that, in one sense, he can say to you, you are more righteous than I because he gives you his own righteousness. So like Judah, we all need this to break through. And if you find yourself like Tamar, I hope that you can take comfort from this story that God does see you and that his light will break in and heal. It's really only a matter of time. We can say, right, the famous words that the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends toward justice because it is Jesus who enacted that justice. So how do we continue to experience that healing? What do we do when you're going to leave here and be faced with the pressures of Amazon gift wish lists and holiday parties that you have to get to for your kids and your work? 
right? And all the things that you have to orchestrate to try and make this season work. And yet at the same time, come back here next Sunday and be reminded of all the ways in which you forgot everything you may have heard about God breaking through and then just have the added pressure of, yeah, and church is telling me that I have to work for justice and peace and prosperity and do that all joyfully because that doesn't sound exhausting. Right, so, so what is the better way that God has laid out for us? That if we actually follow the Lion of Judah, Jesus, the ultimate descendant who would bring healing to this family and to all of our own families, how does he do that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that we're invited now to, into our own darkness. That is, Pastor Jeff was talking about during our time of confession that you can now begin to be open and real about that. I mean, that's the importance of why we have things like the women's ministry, you know, event, so that you can just have relationships of love and support and people who know you that provide a safe space for you to be able to be real, if not outwardly with them, at least inwardly with yourself and with God, about the state of your own darkness that's been dumped on you and that you've dished out to others, so that you can begin to Come awake to that, to recognize that in your own self. And yet also continue to recognize how Jesus is greater and greater and greater. And ultimately, how Jesus is more righteous than us, and yet he shares that righteousness with us as a free gift that he gave by dying on the cross. And then on top of that, we can work like Judah to enact justice in the areas that God opens up for us. See, because what will happen later with Judah is that they will need to go find food because of a famine, and they'll go to Egypt where they find their brother Joseph, whom they don't recognize, right? There's that word again. And yet Joseph works a plot to bring healing to his family in the same way that Tamar brought healing to Judah. And in the midst of this plot, he says, you have to leave behind one of your brothers and go bring your father to me. And Judah volunteers and he says, let it be me. Let me be the brother who gives my life for the rest. Of course, pointing us to the ultimate older brother, Jesus, who would give his life for us. Yet Judah was completely transformed because of the light that Tamar brought into his life to help him see. And that when we see that, we can go and we can joyfully buy Christmas gifts to help with families forward. And and I've said this before in the announcements, the thing that I love so much about that ministry is that we just put the gifts in black trash bags and give it to the parents so that they get to be the heroes, so that they get to have the joy of giving these things to their children, right? And we get to go and help and share with Breakfast of the Crossing, but there's probably areas in your own family, in your own life, in your own workplace, in the spheres in which you operate where God can open up opportunities for you to enact justice, to walk humbly with God, yes, but to know that his love is upon you. That's what Advent invites us into, is to bring this light further and further into the darkness of this world, because ultimately Jesus stepped into our greatest darkness and did it for us. And that's the story of Tamar. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. That you would help us to 
to recognize our own darkness and yet to help us recognize and see the light that you can shine into it and how you do not just seek to expose us or humiliate us, but you seek to heal us. So help us now, Lord, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, experiencing your grace and love. We pray this in the name of the Lion of Judah, the Son of Tamar, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.